The long June twilight faded into night. Dublin lay enveloped in darkness from the dim light of the moon that shone through fleecy clouds, casting a pale light as of approaching dawn over the streets and the waters of the Liffey. Around the beleaguered four courts, the heavy guns roared. Here and there through the city, machine guns and rifles broke the silence of the night spasmodically. Like dogs barking on lone farms, Republicans and Free Staters were waging civil war. On a rooftop near O'Connell Bridge, a Republican sniper lay watching. Beside him lay his rifle, and over his shoulders were slung a pair of field glasses. His face was the face of a student thin and ascetic, but his eyes were the cold gleam of the fanatic. They were deep and thoughtful, the eyes of a man who was used to looking at death. He was eating a sandwich hungrily. He had eaten nothing since morning. He had been too excited to eat. He finished the sandwich, and taking a flask of whiskey from his pocket, he took a short draught. Then he returned the flask to his pocket. He paused for a moment, considering whether he should risk a smoke. It was dangerous. The flash might be seen in the darkness, and there were enemies watching. He decided to take the risk, placing a cigarette between his lips. He struck a match, inhaled the smoke, and Hurley put out the light. Almost immediately, a bullet flattened itself against the parapet of the roof. The sniper took another whiff and put out the cigarette. Then he swore softly and crawled away to the left. Cautiously, he raised himself and peered over the parapet. There was a flash, and a bullet whizzed over his head. He dropped immediately. He had seen the flash. It came from the opposite side of the street. He rolled over the roof to a chimney stack in the rear, and slowly drew himself up behind it until his eyes were level with the top of the parapet. There was nothing to be seen, just the dim outline of the opposite housetop against the blue sky. His enemy was undercover. Just then, an armored car came across the bridge and advanced slowly up the street. It stopped on the opposite side of the street, fifty yards ahead. The sniper could hear the dull panting of the motor. His heart beat faster. It was an enemy car. He wanted to fire, but he knew it was useless. His bullets would never pierce the steel that covered the gray monster. Then, round the corner of a side street came an old woman, her head covered by a tattered shawl. She began to talk to the man in the turret of the car. She was pointing to the roof where the sniper lay, an informer. The turret opened. A man's head and shoulders appeared, looking toward the sniper. The sniper raised his rifle and fired. The head fell heavily on the turret wall. The woman darted toward the side street. The sniper fired again. The woman whirled round and fell with a shriek into the gutter. Suddenly, from the opposite roof, a shot rang out, and the sniper dropped his rifle with a curse. The rifle clattered to the roof. The sniper thought the noise would wake the dead. He stooped to pick the rifle up. He couldn't lift it. His forearm was dead. I'm hit, he muttered. Dropping flat onto the roof, he crawled back to the parapet. With his left hand, he felt the injured right forearm. The blood was oozing through the sleeve of his coat. There was no pain, just a deadened sensation, as if the arm had been cut off. Quickly, he drew his knife from his pocket, opened it on the breastwork of the parapet, and ripped open the sleeve. There was a small hole where the bullet had entered. On the other side, there was no hole. The bullet had lodged in the bone. It must have fractured it. He bent the arm below the wound. The arm bent back easily. He ground his teeth to overcome the pain. Then taking out his fuel dressing, he ripped open the packet with his knife. He broke the neck of the iodine bottle and let the bitter fluid drip into the wound. A paroxysm of pain swept through him. He placed the cotton wadding over the wound and wrapped the dressing over it. He tied the ends with his teeth. Then he lay still against the parapet, and closing his eyes, he made an effort of will to overcome the pain. In the street beneath, all was still. The armored car had retired speedily over the bridge, with the machine gunner's head hanging lifeless over the turret. The woman's corpse lay still in the gutter. The sniper lay still for a long time, nursing his wounded arm and planning escape. Morning must not find him wounded on the roof. The enemy on the opposite roof covered his escape. He must kill that enemy, and he could not use his rifle. He had only a revolver to do it. Then he thought of a plan. Taking off his cap, he placed it over the muzzle of his rifle. Then he pushed the rifle slowly upward over the parapet until the cap was visible from the opposite side of the street. Almost immediately there was a report, and a bullet pierced the center of the cap. The sniper slanted the rifle forward. The cap clipped down into the street. Then catching the rifle in the middle, the sniper dropped his left hand over the roof and let it hang, lifelessly. After a few moments, he let the rifle drop to the street. Then he sank to the roof, dragging his hand with him. Crawling quickly to his feet, he peered up at the corner of the roof. His ruse had succeeded. The other sniper, seeing the cap and rifle fall, thought he had killed his man. 
He was now standing before a row of chimney pots, looking across, with his head clearly silhouetted against the western sky. The Republican sniper smiled and lifted his revolver above the edge of the parapet. The distance was about fifty yards, a hard shot in the dim light, and his right arm was painting him like a thousand devils. He took steady aim. His hand trembled with eagerness, pressing his lips together. He took a deep breath through his nostrils and fired. He was almost deafened with the report, and his arm shook with the recoil. Then when the smoke cleared, he peered across and uttered a cry of joy. His enemy had been hit. He was reeling over the parapet in his death agony. He struggled to his feet, but he was slowly falling forward as if in a dream. The rifle fell from his grasp, hit the parapet, fell over, bounded off the pole of a barber's shop beneath, and then clattered on the pavement. Then the dying man on the roof crumpled up and fell forward. The body turned over and over in space and hit the ground with a dull thud. Then it lay still. The sniper looked at his enemy falling and he shuddered. The lust of battle died in him. He became bitten by remorse. The sweat stood out in beads on his forehead. We I had seen the magic shop from afar several times. I had passed it once or twice. A shop window of alluring little objects. Magic balls, magic hens, wonderful cones ventriloquist dolls, the material of the basket trick, packs of cards that looked all right, and all that sort of thing. But never had I thought of going in, until one day, almost without warning, Gip hauled me by my finger right up to the window, and so conducted himself that there was nothing for it but to take him in. I had not thought the place was there, to tell the truth. A modest-sized frontage in Regent Street, between the picture shop and the place where the chicks run about, just out of patent incubators. There it was, sure enough. I had fancy it was down near the circus, or round the corner in Oxford Street, or even in Holborn, always over the way and a little inaccessible. It had been with something of the mirage in its position, but here it was now, quite indisputably, and the fat end of Gip's pointing finger made a noise upon the glass. If I was rich, said Gip, dabbing a finger at the disappearing egg, I'd buy myself that, and that, which was the crying baby, very human in that, which was a mystery, and called, so a neat card asserted, by one in astonishing your friends. Anything, said Gip, will disappear under one of those cones. I have read about it in a book, and there, Dada, in the vanishing halfpenny, only they've put it this way up, so as we can't see how it's done. Gip, dear boy, inherits his mother's breeding, and he did not propose to enter the shop or worry in any way. Only you know, quite unconsciously, he lugged my finger doorward and made his interest clear. That, he said, and pointed to the magic bottle. If you had that, I said, at which promising inquiry he looked up with a sudden radiance. I could show it to Jesse, he said, thoughtful as ever of others. It's less than a hundred days to your birthday, Gibbles, I said, and laid my hand on the door handle. Gip made no answer, but his grip tightened. But his grip tightened on my finger, and so we came into the shop. It was no common shop, this. It was a magic shop, and all the prancing pre precedence Gip would have taken in the matter of mere toys was wanting. He left the burden of the conversation on me. It was a little narrow shop, not very well lit, and the doorbell pinged again with a plaintive note as we closed it behind us. For a moment or so we were alone, and could glance about us. There was a tiger in the paper mache on the glass case that covered the low counter. A grave kind-eyed tiger had that waggled his head in a methodical manner. There were several crystal spheres, a china hand holding magic cards, a stock of magic fishbowls in various scenes, and an immodest magic hat that shamelessly displayed its springs. On the floor were magic mirrors, one to draw you out long and thin, one to swell your head and vanish your legs, and one to make you short and fat like a drought. And while we were laughing at these, the shopman, as I supposed, came in. At any rate, there he was, behind the counter, a curious, sallow, dark man, with, with one ear larger than the other, and a chin like a toe cap of a boot. What can we have the pleasure, he said, spreading his long magic fingers on the glass case. And so, with the start, we were aware of him. I want, I said, to buy my little boy a few simple tricks. Legitimate, he asked. Mechanical? Domestic? Anything amusing, said I. Hmm, said the shopman, and scratched his head for a moment as if thinking. Then quite distinctly he drew from his head a glass ball. Something in this way, he said, and held it out. 
the action was unexpected. I had seen the trick done at entertainments endless times before. It's part of the common stock of conjurers, but I had not expected it. That's good, I said with a laugh. Isn't it, said the shopman. Gibbs stretched out his disengaged hand to take the object and found merely a blank palm. It's in your pocket, said the shopman, and there it was. How much will it be, I asked. We make no charge for glass balls, said the shopman politely. We get them. He picked out. He picked one out of his elbow as he spoke. Free. He produced another from the back of his neck and laid it beside its predecessor on the counter. Gip regarded his glass ball sagely, then directed a look of inquiry at the two on the counter, and finally brought his round-eyed scrutiny to the shopman who smiled. You may have those too, said the shopman, and if you don't mind, one from the, my mouth. Gip counseled me mutely for a moment, and then in profound silence put away the four balls, resumed my reassuring finger, and nerved himself for the next event. We get all our smaller tricks in that way, the shopman remarked. I laughed in the manner of one who subscribes to a jest. Instead of going to the wholesale shop, I said, of course it's cheaper. In a way, said the shopman, though we pay in the end, but not so heavily as people suppose. Our larger tricks and our daily provisions and all the other things we want, we get out of that hat. And you know, sir, if you'll excuse my saying it, there isn't a wholesale shop not for genuine magic goods. Sir, I don't know if you noticed our inscription, the genuine magic shop. He drew a business card from his cheek and handed it to me. Genuine, he said with a finger on the word, and added there is absolutely no deception, sir. He seemed to be carrying out the joke pretty thoroughly, I thought. He turned to Gip with a smile of remarkable affability. You, you know you are the right sort of... You, you know you are the right sort of boy. I was surprised at his knowing that, because in the interests of discipline, we keep it rather secret even at home. But Gip received in an unflinching silence, keeping a steadfast eye on him. It's only the right sort of boy gets through that doorway. And as if by way of illustration, there came a rattling at the door, and a squeaking little voice could be heard faintly. Nyar, I want to go in there, Dada. I want to go in there. Nyar. And then the accents of a downtro downtrodden parent, urging consolation and propitations. It's locked, Edward, he said. But it isn't, said I. It is, sir, said the shopman. Always for that sort of child. Always for that sort of child. And he spoke. We had a glimpse of the other youngster, a little white-faced pallid from sweet eating and over-sapid food and distorted by evil passions, a ruthless little egotist pawing at the enchanted pain. It's no good, sir, said the shopman as I moved with my natural helpfulness, doorward, and, pre and presently the spoilt, spoilt child was carried off howling. How do you manage that, I said. Breathing a little more freely. Magic, said the shopman, with a careless wave of the hand, and behold, sparks of colored fire flew out of his fingers and vanished into the shadows of the shop. You were saying, he said, addressing himself toward Gip, before you came in that you would like to buy you would like one of our buy one and astonish your friends boxes. Gip, after a gallant effort, said yes. It's in your pocket. And leaning over the counter he realized he really had an extraordinarily long body. This amazing person produced the article in the customary conjurer's manner. Paper, he said, and took a sheet out of that empty hat with the springs. And behold, his mouth was a string box from which he drew an unending thread, which when he had tied his parcel, he bit off, and it seemed to me, swallowed the ball of string. And then he lit a candle at the nose of one of the ventriloquist dummies, stuck one of his fingers, which had become sealing wax red, into the flame and so sealed the parcel. Then there was the disappearing egg, he remarked, and produced one from within my coat breast and packed it. Also the crying baby, very human. I handed each parcel to Gip as it was ready, and he clasped them to his chest. He said very little, but his eyes were eloquent. The clutch of his arms was eloquent, and he was the playground of, ex unex he was the playground of unspeakable emotions. These, you know, were real magics. Then, with a start, I discovered something moving about in my hat, something soft and jumpy. I whipped it off, and a ruffled pigeon, no doubt a confederate, dropped out and ran on the counter and went. I fancy into a cardboard box behind the papier-mâché tiger. Tut-tut, said the shopman, dexterously relieving me of my headdress. Careless bird, and, as I live, nesting. He shook my hat and shook out into his extended hand two or three eggs, a large marble, a watch and about half a dozen of the inevitable glass balls, 
and then crumpled, crinkled paper, more and more and more, taking all the time of the way, taking all the time of the way in which people neglect to brush their hats inside, as well as out, politely of course, but with all certain personal application. All sorts of things accumulate, sir, not you of course in particular, nearly every customer, astonishing what they carry about with them. The crumpled paper rose and billowed on the counter more and more, until he was nearly hidden from us, until he was altogether hidden, and still his voice went on and on. We, none of us know what the fair semblance of a human may, none of us know what the fair semblance of a human being may conceal, sir. Are we all then no better than brushed exteriors, whited sepulchres? His voice stopped, exactly like when you hit a neighbor's gramophone with a well-aimed brick. The same instant silence, and the rustle of the paper stopped, and everything was still. Have you done with my hat, I said after an interval. There was no answer. I stared at Gip, and Gip stared at me. And there were our distortions in the magic mirrors, looking very rum and grave and quiet. I think we'll go now, I said. Will you tell me how much all this comes to? I say, I said on a rather louder note. I want the bill and my hat, please. It might have been a sniff from behind the paper pile. Let's look behind the counter, Gip, I said. He's making fun of us. I led Gip round the head-wagging tiger. And what do you think there was behind the counter? No one at all. Only my hat on the floor and a common conjurer's lop-eared white rabbit lost in meditation and looking as stupid as stupid and crumbled as only a conjurer's rabbit can do. I resumed my hat, lolloped a lollop or so out of my way. Dada, said Gip in a guilty whisper. What is it, Gip, said I. I do like this shop, Dada. So should I, I said to myself, if the counter wouldn't suddenly extend itself to shut one off from the door. But I didn't call Gip's attention to that. Pussy, he said with a hand out to the rabbit as it came lolloping past us. Pussy, do Gip a magic and his eye had followed it as it squeezed through a door. I had certainly not remarked a moment before. Then this door opened wider, and the man with one ear larger than the other appeared again. He was smiling. He was smiling still, but his eyes met mine with something between amusement and defiance. You'd like to see our, so our showroom, sir, he said, with an innocent suavity. Gip tugged my finger forward. I glanced at the counter and met the shopman's eye again. I was beginning to think the magic was just was just a little too genuine. We haven't very much time, I said, but somehow we were inside the showroom before I could finish that. All goods of the same quality, said the shopman, rubbing his, fle his flexible hands together, and that is the best. Nothing in this place that isn't genuine magic and warranted thoroughly rum. Excuse me, sir? I felt him, <clears throat> I felt him pulling at something that clung to my coat sleeve, and then I saw he held a little wriggling red demon by the tail, the little creature bit and fought, and tried to get at his hand, and in a moment he tossed it carelessly behind the counter. No doubt the thing was only an image of twisted Indiana, India rubber, but for the moment, and his gesture was exactly that of a man who handles some petty-biting bit, petty bit of vermin. I glanced at Gip, but Gip was looking at a magic rocking horse. I was glad he hadn't seen the thing. I say, I said in an undertone, indicating Gip and the Red Demon with my eyes, you haven't many things like that about, have you? None of ours. Probably brought it with you, said the shopman, also in an undertone and with a more dazzling smile than ever. Astonishing what people will carry about with them unawares. And then to Gip, do you see anything you fancy here? There were many things that Gip fancied here. He turned to this astonishing tradesman with a mingled confidence and respect. Is that a magic sword, he said. A magic toy sword. It neither bends, breaks, nor cuts the finger. It renders the bearer invincible in battle against anyone under eighteen. Half a crown to seven and six pence according to size. These panoplies on the cards are for juvenile knights. Errant and very useful. Shield of safety. Sandals of swiftness. Helmet of invisibility. Oh, daddy, gasped Gip. I tried to find out what they cost, but the shopman did not heed me. He had Gip now. It got him away from my finger, and he had embarked upon the exposition of all his confounded stock. Nothing was going to stop him. Presently I saw, with a, calm, with a qualm of distrust, something very like jealousy, that Gip had hold of this person's finger as usually he had hold of mine. No doubt the fellow was interesting, I thought, and had an interestingly faked lot of stuff, but really good fake stuff, still. I wandered after them, saying very little. 
but keeping an eye on the pre on this prestidigital fellow. After all, Gip was enjoying it, and no doubt when the time came to go, we should be able to go quite easily. It was a long, rambling place, that, show that showroom. A gallery broken up by stands and stalls and pillars, with archways leading off to other departments, in which the queerest-looking assistants loafed and stared at one, with perplexing mirrors and curtains. So perplexing indeed were these that I was presently unable to make out the door by which we had come. The shopmen showed Gip magic trains that ran without steam or clockwork, just as you set the signals, and then some very valuable boxes of soldiers that all, that all came alive directly. He took off the lid and said, I myself, having a very quick ear, it was a tongue-twisting sound, but Gip, he has his mother's ears, got it in no time. Bravo, said the shopman, putting the men back into the box unceremoniously and handing it to Gip. Now, said the shopman, and in a moment, Gip had made them all alive again. You take that box, said the, asked the shopman. We'll take that box, said I, unless you charge its full value, in which case I would need a trust magnet. Dear heart, no, said the shopman, swept the little men back again. Shut the lid, waved the box in the air, and there it was in brown paper, tied up and, and with Gip's full name and address on the paper. The shopman laughed at my amazement. This is a genuine magic shop, he said. The real thing. It's a little too genuine for my taste, I said again. After that, he fell to, showing Gip tricks and odd tricks, and still odder the way they were done. He explained them, he turned them inside and out, and there was, dear, there was the dear little chap, nodding with the busy bit of a head in the sagest manner. I did not as I did not attend as well as I might. Hey, presto, said the magic shop man. And then there, there would come the clear small, hey, presto, of the boy. But it was distracted by other things. But I was distracted by other things. I was being borne in upon me, just how tremendously rum this place was. It was, so to speak, inundated with the sense of rumness. There was something a little rum about the fixtures even, about the ceiling, about the floor, about the casually distributed chairs. I had a queer feeling that whenever I wasn't looking at them, straight they went askew, and moved about, and played a noiseless puss in the corner behind my back, and the cornice had a serpentine design with masks, masks altogether too expressive for proper plaster. Then abruptly my attention was caught by one of the odd-looking assistants. He was some way off, and evidently unaware of my presence. I saw a sort of three-quarter length of him over a pile of toys and through an arch, and you know he was leaning against the pillar in an idle sort of way, doing the most horrid things with his features. The particular horrid thing he did was with his nose. He did it just as though he was idle and wanted to amuse himself. First of all, it was a short, blobby nose, and then suddenly he shot it out like a telescope, and then out it flew and became thinner and thinner until it was a long, red, flexible whip, like a thing in a nightmare it was. He flourished it about and flung it forth, as a fly fisher flings his line. My instant thought was that Gip mustn't see him. I turned about, and there was Gip, quite preoccupied with the shopman, and thinking no evil. They were whispering together and looking at me. Gip was standing on a little stool, and the shopman was holding a sort of big red drum, a sort of big drum in his hand. Hide and seek, Dada, cried Gip. You're he. And before I could do anything to prevent it, the shopman had clapped the big drum over him. I saw that was up directly. Take that off, I cried this instant. You'll frighten the boy. Take it off. The shopman, with his unequal ears, did so without a word, and held the big, the big cylinder towards me to show its emptiness. And the little tool was vacant. In that instant, my boy had utterly disappeared. You know, perhaps that sinister something that comes like a hand of the out of the Someone else should be telling this story. Someone who understands the funny kind of football they play down in South America. Back in Moscow, Idaho, we grab the ball and run with it. In the small but prosperous republic, which I'll call Perivia, they kick it around with their feet. And that is nothing to what they do to the umpire. One of the first things I learned when I got to Perivia, after various distressing adventures, in the less democratic parts of South America was the last year's match had been lost owing to the knavish dishonesty of the referee. He had, it seemed, penalized most of the players on the team, disallowing a goal, and generally made sure that the best side wouldn't win. This diatribe made me quite homesick. 
but remembering where I was, I merely commented, You should have paid him more money. We did, was the bitter reply. But the Panagorans got at him later. Too bad, I answered. It's hard nowadays to find an honest man who stays bought. The customs inspector, who'd just taken my last hundred dollar bill, had the grace to blush beneath his stubble as he waved me across the border. The next few weeks were tough, but presently I was in what I prefer to call the agricultural machinery business. The last thing I had time to bother about was football. I knew that my expensive imports were going to be used at any moment and wanted to make sure that this time my profit went with me when I left the country. Even so, I could hardly ignore the excitement as the day for the return match drew near. For one thing, it interfered with business. Even so, I could hardly ignore excitement as the day for the return match drew near. For one thing, it interfered with business. I'd go to a conference arranged with great difficulty and expense at a safe hotel, and half of the time, everyone would be talking about football. Gentlemen, I'd protest. Our next consignment of rotary drills is being unloaded tomorrow, and unless we get that permit from the Ministry of Agriculture, some busybody may open the cases, and then... Don't worry, my boy, General Sierra or Colonel Pedro would answer airily. That's already taken care of. Leave it to the army. I knew better than to retort, which army? And for the next ten minutes, I'd have to listen to arguments about football tactics and the best way of dealing with recalcitrant referees. It was then that Don Hernando Diaz's name came up for the first time. I knew of him as one of the country's leading industrialists, but he had an equal reputation as playboy, racing car driver, and scientific dilettante. It surprised me to learn that he was one of us, for he was a favorite of President Ruiz. Naturally, I had never met him. He had to be very particular about his friends, and there were few people who cared to meet me unless they had to. I suspected that something was happening when I took my place in the football stadium on that memorable day. If you think I had no wish to be there, you are quite correct. But Colonel Pedro had given me a ticket, and he was unhealthy to hurt his feelings by not using it. There had been a slight delay in admitting the spectators. The police had done their best, but it takes time to search a hundred thousand people for concealed firearms. The visiting team had insisted on this to the great indignation of the locals. Their protests faded swiftly enough, however, as the art artillery accumulated at the check. Then a sweating band played the two national anthem. The teams were presented to El Presidente and his lady, and the cardinal blessed everybody. While we were waiting, I examined the program, a beautiful, fully produced affair that had been given to me by the lieutenant. It was tabloid size, printed on art paper and bound in metal foil that gleamed like silver. You could see your face in it, and I noticed a number of ladies using it to make their last-minute repairs and adjustments. I also noticed that this special victory souvenir issue had been paid for by an impressive list of subscribers, headed by himself, Don Hernando, who had himself, it seemed, presented 50,000 free copies to our gallant fighting men. If this was a bid for popularity, it seemed rather naive one, and surely President Ruiz wouldn't let half his army be bottled up in this stadium for the best part of an afternoon. These reflections were interrupted by the roar of the enormous crowd, as play started. For the first ten minutes, it was a pretty open game, and I don't think there were more than three fights. The Peruvians just missed one goal. The ball was headed out so neatly that the frantic applause from the Panaguaran supporters, who had a special police guard and a fortified section of the stadium all to themselves, went quite unbooed. I began to feel disappointed, why, if you change the shape of the ball, this might be a good-natured Idaho game. There was no real work for the Red Cross until nearly halftime, when three Peruvians and two Panaguarans, or it may have been the other way around, fused together in a magnificent melee, from which only one survivor emerged under his own power. 
The casualties were carted off amid much pandemonium, and there was a short break while replacements were brought up. This started the first major incident. The Peruvians complained that the other side's wounded were shaming so that fresh reserves be poured in. But the referee was adamant the new men came on and the background noise dropped just below the threshold of pain as the game resumed. The Panaguarans promptly scored. And though none of my neighbors actually committed suicide, several seemed close to it. The transfusion of new blood had apparently pepped up the visitors. Things looked bad for the home team. Their opponents were passing the ball with such skill that the Peruvians' defenses were as porous as a sieve. At this rate, I told myself the ref can afford to be honest. His side will win anyway, and to give him his due, I'd seen no sign of any obvious bias so far. I didn't have long to wait. A last-minute rally by the home team blocked a threatened attack on the goal, and a mighty kick by one of the defenders sent the ball rocketing toward the other end of the field. Before it had reached the apex of its flight, the piercing shriek of the referee's whistle brought the game to a halt. There was a brief consultation between ref and the captains. The crowd was roaring its disapproval. What's happening now, I asked plaintively. The ref said our man was offsides. But how can he be? He's on top of his own goal. Shush, said the lieutenant, obviously unwilling to waste his enlightenment on my ignorance. I don't shush easily, but this time I let it go and tried to work things out for myself. It seemed that the ref had awarded the Panaguarans a free kick at our goal, and I could understand the way everybody felt about it. The ball soared through the air in a beautiful parabola, nicked the post and cannoned in. A mighty roar of anguish rose from the crowd, then died abruptly to a silence that was even more impressive. It was as if a great animal had been wounded and was bidding the time for its revenge. Despite the heat pouring down from the not-so-far vertical sun, I felt a sudden chill as if a cold wind had swept past me. Not for all the wealth of the Incas would I have changed places with the man sweating out there on the field in his bulletproof vest. We were two down, but there was still hope. A lot could happen before the end of the game. The Peruvians were on their mettle now, playing with almost demonic intensity, like men who had accepted a challenge were going to show that they could beat it. The new spirit paid off promptly. The home team scored one impeccable goal within a couple of minutes, and the crowd went wild with joy. By this time I was shouting like everyone else and telling the, that referee things I didn't know I could say in Spanish. It was 1-2 now, and a 100,000 people were praying and cursing for the goal that would bring us level again. It came just after halftime. The ball had been passed to one of our forwards. He ran about 50 feet with it evaded a couple of defenders with some neat footwork and kicked it cleanly into the goal. It had scarcely dropped down from the net when the whistle blew again. Now what I wondered, he can't disallow that, but he did. The ball, it seemed, had been handled. I've got pretty good eyes and I never saw it, so I cannot honestly say that I blame anyone for what happened next. The police managed to keep the crowd off the field, though it was a touch and go for a minute. The two teams drew apart, leaving the center of the pitch bare except for the stubbornly defiant figure of the referee. He was probably wondering how he could make his escape from the stadium and was consoling himself with the thought that when this game was over, he could retire for good. The thin high bugle call took everyone completely by surprise. Everyone that is except for the 50,000 well-trained men who had been waiting for it with mounting impatience. The whole arena became instantly silent, so silent that I could hear the noise of the traffic outside the stadium. A second time that bugle sounded, and all the vast acreage of faces opposite me vanished in a blinding sea of fire. I cried out and covered my eyes for one horrified moment. I thought of atomic bombs and braced myself uselessly for the blast. There was no concussion, only that flickering veil of flame that beat even through my closed eyelids for long seconds, then vanished as swiftly as it had come. When the bugle blared out for the third and last time, everything was just as it had been before. Except for one minor item, where the referee had been standing, there was a small smoldering heap from which a thin 
An old man with steel-rimmed spectacles and very dusty clothes sat by the side of the road. There was a pontoon bridge across the river, and carts, trucks, and men, women and children were crossing it. The mule-drawn carts staggered up the steep bank from the bridge, with soldiers helping push against the spokes of the wheels. The trucks ground up and away, heading out of it all and the peasants plodded along in ankle-deep dust, but the old man sat there without moving. He was too tired to go any farther. It was my business to cross the bridge, explore the bridgehead beyond, and find out to what point the enemy had advanced. I did this and returned over the bridge. There were not so many carts now and very few people on foot, but the old man was still there. Where do you come from, I asked. From San Carlos, he said and smiled. That was his native town, and so it gave him pleasure to mention it. And he smiled. I was taking care of animals, he explained. Oh, I said, not quite understanding. Yes, he said. I stayed, you see, taking care of animals. I was the last one to leave the town of San Carlos. He did not look like a shepherd nor a herdsman, and I looked at his black dusty clothes and his gray dusty face and his steel room spectacles and said what animals were they? Various animals, he said, and shook his head. I had to leave them. I was watching the bridge in the African-looking country of the Ebro Delta and wondering how long now it would be before we would see the enemy, and listening all the while for the first noises that would signal that ever-mysterious event called contact. And the old man still sat there. What animals were they, I asked. There were three animals altogether, he explained. There were two goats and a cat, and then there were four pairs of pigeons. And you had to leave them, I asked. Yes, because of the artillery. The captain told me to go because of the artillery. And you have no family, I asked, watching the far end of the bridge where a few last carts were hurrying down the slope of the bank. No, he said, only the animals. I stated, the cat, of course, will be all right. A cat can look out for itself, but I cannot think what will become of the others. What politics have you, I asked. I'm without politics, he said. I'm 76 years old. I've come 12 kilometers now, and I think now I can go no farther. This is not a good place to stop, I said. If you can make it, there are trucks up the road where it forks to Tortosa. I will wait a while, he said, and then I will go. Where do the trucks go? Towards Barcelona, I told him. I know no one in that direction, he said, but thank you very much. Thank you again, very much. He looked at me very blankly and tiredly, then said, having to share his worries with someone. The cat will be all right, I am sure. There is no need to be unquiet about the cat but the others. Now what do you think about the others? Why, they'll probably come through it all right. You think so? Why not, I said, watching the far bank where now there were no carts. But what will they do under the artillery? When I was told to leave because of the artillery. Did you leave the dove cage unlocked, I asked? Yes. Then they'll fly. Yes, certainly they'll fly, but the others. It's better not to think about the others, he said. If you are rested, I would go. I urged, get up and try to walk now. Thank you, he said, and got to his feet, swayed from side to side, and then sat back downwards in the dust. I was taking care of animals, he said dully, but no longer to me. I was only taking care of my animals. There was nothing to do about him. It was Easter Sunday, and the fascists were advancing toward the Ebro. It was a gray, overcast day with a low ceiling, so their planes were not up. That and the fact that cats know how to look after themselves was all the good luck the old man would ever have. My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Ntel, said a very self-possessed young lady of fifteen. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttel endeavored to say the correct something which should duly flatter the niece of the moment, without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately, he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards helping the, the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. I know how it will be, his sister had said, when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat. You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul, and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. 
I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Miss Stapleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. Do you know many people around here? asked the niece, when she judged they had had sufficient silent communion. Hardly a soul, said Frampton. My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here. He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. Then you know practically nothing about my aunt, pursued the self-possessed young lady. Only her name and address, admitted the caller, who was wondering whether Miss Sapleton was in the married or widowed state. An undefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. Her great tragedy happened just three years ago, said the child. That would be since your sister's time. Her tragedy, asked Frampton. Somehow in, his, in this restful country spot, tragedies seem out of place. You may wonder why we keep the window wide open on an October afternoon, said the niece, indicating a large French window that opened on the lawn. It is quite warm for the time of year, said Frampton. But has the window got anything to do with this tragedy? Out through that window, three years ago to a day, her husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back in crossing the moor to their favorite snipe-shooting ground. They were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog that had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning. Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Here the child's voice lost its self-possessed note and became falteringly human. Poor aunt always thinks that they will come back some day. They and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt, she has often told me how they went out, her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm, and Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing Birdie Why Do You Bound, as he always did to tease her, because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know sometimes on still quiet evenings like this, I almost get a creepy feeling that they will all walk through that window. She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with a whirl of apologies for being late and making her appearance. I hope Vera has been amusing you, she said. She has been very interesting, said Frampton. I hope you do not mind the open window, said Miss Stapleton briskly. My husbands and brothers will be home directly from shooting, and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they'll make a fine mess over my poor carpet. So like you men folk, isn't it? She rattled on cheerily about, about the shooting and scarcity of birds, and the prospect for duck in the winter. To Frampton it was all purely horrible. He made a desperate but only partially successful effort to turn the talk onto a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window on the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. The doctors agree in ordering me complete rest, an absence of mental excitement, and avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise, announced Frampton who labored on the, under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and, ch and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least detail of one's ailment and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet, they are not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Miss Stapleton in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment. Then she suddenly brightened into alert attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. Here they are at last, she cried, just in time for tea. And don't they look as if they were muddy up to the eyes? Frampton shivered slightly and turned toward the niece with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was staring out through the open window with a dazed horror in her eyes, in a chill shock of nameless fear. Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn towards the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulder. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly, they neared the house, and then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dusk. I said, Bertie, why do you bound? Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat. The hall door, the gravel drive, and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid imminent collision. Here we are, my dear, said the bearer of the white Macintosh, coming in through the window. Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that who bolted out as we came up? A most extraordinary man, a Mr. Nottel, said Miss Stapleton. Could only talk about his illness and dashed off without a word or goodbye or apology when you arrived. One would think he had seen a ghost. I expect it was the Spaniel, said the niece calmly. 
He told me he had a horror of dogs. He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the, on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs, and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him, enough to make anyone lose their nerve. Romance, at short notice, was her specialty. To enter out into that city that was the city at eight o'clock of a misty evening in November, to put your feet upon that buckling concrete, to step over grassy seams and make your way, hands in pockets, through the silence. That was what Mr. Leonard Meade most dearly loved to do. He would stand upon the corner of an intersection and peer down long moonlit avenues of sidewalk in four directions, deciding which way to go. But it really made no difference. He was alone in this world of A.D. 2053, or as good as alone. And with the final decision made, a path selected, he would stride off, sending patterns of frosty air before him like the smoke of a cigar. Sometimes, he would walk for hours and miles and return only at midnight to his house. And on his way, he would see the cottages and homes with their dark windows and it was not unequal to walking through a graveyard where only the faintest glimmers of firefly light appeared and flickers behind the windows. Sudden gray phantoms seemed to manifest upon inner room walls where a curtain was still undrawn against the night, where there were whisperings and murmurs where a window in a tomb-like building was still open. Mr. Leonard Meade would pause, cock his head, listen, look, and march on, his feet making no noise on the lumpy sidewalk. For long ago, he had wisely changed his sneakers when strolling at night, because the dogs and the intermittent squads would parallel his journey with barkings if he wore hard heels, and lights might click on and faces appear, and an entire street be startled by the passing of a lone figure, himself in the early November evening. On this particular evening, he began his journey in a westerly direction, toward the hidden sea. There was a good crystal frost in the air. It cut the nose and made the lungs blaze like a Christmas tree inside. He could feel the cold light going on and off, all the branches filled with invisible snow. He listened to the faint push of his soft shoes through autumn leaves with satisfaction, and whistled a cold, quiet whistle between his teeth, occasionally picking up a leaf as he passed, examining its skeletal pattern in the infrequent lamplights as he went on, smelling its rusty smell. Hello in there, he whispered to every house on every side as he moved. What's up tonight on Channel 4, Channel 7, Channel 9? Where are the cowboys rushing? And do I see the United States Cavalry over the next hill to the rescue? The street was silent and long and empty, with only his, his shadow moving like the shadow of a hawk in mid-country. If he closed his eyes and stood very still, frozen, he could imagine himself upon the center of a plain. A wintry, windless Arizona desert, with no house in a thousand miles, and only dry riverbeds. The streets for company. What is it now? He asked the houses, noticing his, rich, his wristwatch. 8.30 p.m., time for a dozen assorted murders, a quiz review, a comedian falling off stage. Was that a murmur of laughter from within a, within a moon-white house? He hesitated, but went on. And when nothing more happened, he stumbled over a particularly uneven section of sidewalk. The cement was vanishing under flowers and grass. In ten years of walking by night or day for thousands of miles, he had never met another person walking. Not once in all that time. He came to a cloverleaf intersection, which stood silent, where two main highways crossed the town. During the day, it was, the thun it was a thunderous surge of cars. The gas stations opened, a great insect rustling and a ceaselessly jockeying for position as the scarab beetles, a faint incense puttering from their exhaust, skimmed homeward to the far directions. But now these days, too, were like streams in a dry season, all stone and bed and moon radiance. He turned back on a side street, circling around toward his home. He was within a block of his destination, when the lone car turned a corner quite suddenly and flashed a fierce white cone of light upon him. He stood entranced, not unlike a night moth, stunned by the illumination, and then drawn toward it. A metallic voice called to him. Stand still. Stay where you are. Don't move. He halted. Put up your hands. The police, of course. But what a rare, incredible thing in a city of three million. There was only one police car left. Wasn't that correct? Ever since a year ago, 2052, the election year, the force had been cut down from three cars to one. Crime was ebbing, and there was no need now for the police, save for this one lone car wandering and wandering the empty streets. Your name, said the police car. Almost got attacked by B. Your name, said the police car in a metallic whisper. He couldn't see the men in it, in it for the bright light in his eyes. Leonard Meade, he said. Speak up. 
Leonard Mead, business or profession? I guess you'd call me a writer. No profession, said the police car as if, talking to himself. The light held him fixed, like a museum specimen. Needle thrust through chest. You might say that, said Mr. Mead. He hadn't written in years. Magazines and books didn't sell anymore. Everything went on in the tomb-like houses at night now. He thought continuing his fancy, the tombs, hill lit by television light, where the people sat like the dead, the gray of multicolored lights, touching their faces, but never really touching them. No professions, said the phonograph's voice, hissing. What are you doing out? Walking, said Leonard Mead. Walking? Just walking, he said simply, but his face felt cold. Walking, just walking? Walking? Yes, sir. Walking where? For what? Walking for air. Walking to sea. Your address? Eleven South St. James Street. And there is air in your house? You have an air conditioner, Mr. Mead? Yes. You have a viewing screen in your house to see with? No. No, there was a crackling, quiet that in itself was an accusation. Are you married, Mr. Mead? No. Not married, said the police voice behind the fiery beam. The moon was high and clear among the stars, and the houses were gray and silent. Nobody wanted me, said Leonard Mead with a smile. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. Leonard Mead just waited in the cold night. Just walking, Mr. Mead. Yes, but you haven't explained for what purpose. I explained for air and to see and just to walk. Have you done this often? Every night for years. The police car sat in the center of the street with its radio throat faintly humming. Well, Mr. Mead, it said. Is that all? he asked politely. Yes, said the voice. Here, there was a sigh. A pop. The back door of the police car sprang wide. Get in. Wait a minute, I haven't done anything. Get in. I protest. Mr. Mead. He walked like a man suddenly drunk. As he passed the front window of the car, he looked in. As he had expected, there was no one in the front seat. No one in the car at all. Get in. He put his hand to the door and peered into the back seat, which was a little cell. A little black jail with bars. It smelled of riveted steel. It smelled of harsh antiseptic. It smelled too clean and hard and metallic. There was nothing soft there. Now if you had a wife to give you an alibi, said the iron voice. But, where are you taking me? The car hesitated, or rather gave a faint whirring click. As if information somewhere was dropping card by punch-slotted card under electronic eyes to the psychiatric center for research on regressive tendencies. He got in. The door shut with a soft thud. The police car rolled through the night avenues, flashing its dim lights ahead. They passed one house on one street. A moment later, one house, an entire city of houses that were all dark. But this one particular house had all of its electric lights brightly lit. Every window allowed yellow illumination, square and warm in the cool darkness. That's my house, said Lena Reed. No one answered him. The car moved down the empty riverbed, streets and off away, leaving the empty streets with the empty sidewalks, no sound and no motion at all. The rest of the chill November night. The policeman on the beat moved up the avenue impressively. The impressiveness was habitual, not for show, for spectators were few. The time was barely ten o'clock at night, but chilly gusts of wind, with a taste of rain in them, had well nigh depeopled the streets, trying doors as he went twirling his club with many intricate and artful movements, turning now and then to cast his watchful eye down the Pacific thoroughfare. The officer, with his stalwart form and slight swagger, made a fine picture of a guardian of the peace. The vicinity was one that kept early hours. Now and then you might see the lights of a cigar store or of an all-night lunch counter, but the majority of the doors belonged to business places that had long since been closed. When about midway of a certain block, the policeman suddenly slowed his walk. In the doorway of a darkened hardware store, a man leaned with an unlighted cigar in his mouth. As the policeman walked up to him, the man spoke up quickly. It's all right, officer, he said reassuringly. I'm just waiting for a friend. It's an appointment made twenty years ago. Sounds a little funny to you, doesn't it? Well, I'll explain if you'd like to make certain it's all straight. About that long ago, there used to be a restaurant where this store stands. Big Joe Brady's Restaurant. Until five years ago, said the policeman. It was torn down then. The man in the doorway struck a match and lit his cigar. The light showed a pale, square-jawed face with keen eyes and a little white scar near his right eyebrow. His scarf pin was a large diamond, oddly set. Twenty years ago tonight, said the man. 
I dined here at Big Joe Brady's with Jimmy Wells, my best chum and the finest chap in the world. He and I were raised here in New York, just like two brothers together. I was 18 and Jimmy was 20. The next morning, I was to start for the West to make my fortune. I couldn't have dragged Jimmy out of New York. He thought it was the only place on earth. But we agreed that night that we would meet here again exactly 20 years from that date and time. No matter what our conditions might be, or from what distance we might have to come, we figured that in 20 years each of us ought to have our destiny worked out, and our fortunes made, whatever they were going to be. Sounds pretty interesting, said the policeman. Rather a long time between meets, though it seems to me. Haven't you heard from your friend since you left? Well, yes, for a time we corresponded, said the other. But after a year or two, we lost track of each other. You see, the West is a pretty big proposition, and I kept hustling around over it pretty lively. But I know Jimmy will meet me here, if he's alive, for he always was the truest, staunchest old chap in the world. He'll never forget. I came a thousand miles to stand in this door tonight, and it's worth it if my old partner turns up. The waiting man pulled out a handsome watch, the lids of it set with small diamonds. Three minutes to ten, he announced. It was exactly ten o'clock. It was exactly ten o'clock when we parted here at the restaurant door. Did pretty well out west, didn't you? asked the policeman. You bet. I hope Jimmy has done half as well. He was kind of a plotter, though. Good fellow as he was, I've had to compete with some of the sharpest wits going to get my pile. A man gets a groove in New York. It takes the west to put a razor edge on him. The policeman twirled his club and took a step or two. I'll be on my way. Hope your friend comes around all right. Going to call time on him sharp. I should say not, said the other. I'll give him half an hour at least. If Jimmy is alive on earth, he'll be here by that time. So long, officer. Good night, sir, said the policeman, passing on along his beat, trying doors as he went. There was now a fine cold drizzle falling, and the wind had risen from its uncertain puffs into a steady blow. The few foot passengers astir in that quarter hurried dismally and silently along with coat collars turned high and pocketed hands and in the door of the hardware store the man who had come a thousand miles to fill an appointment uncertain almost to absurdity with the friend of his youth smoked his cigar and waited about twenty minutes he waited and then a tall man in a long overcoat with collar turned up to his ears hurried across from the opposite side of the street he went directly to the waiting man is that you bob he asked doubtfully is that you jimmy wells cried the man in the door bless my heart exclaimed the new arrival grasping both the other's hands with his own it's bob sure as fate i was certain i'd find you here if you were still in existence well 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 twenty years is a long time the old gone by bob i wish it had lasted so we could have another dinner there how has the west treated you old man bully it has given me everything i asked it for you've changed lots jimmy I never thought you were so tall by two or three inches. Oh, I grew a bit after I was twenty. Doing well in New York, Jimmy. Moderately. I've a position in one of the city department. Come on, Bob. We'll go around to a place I know of and have a good long talk about old times. The two men started up the street, arm in arm. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law. They were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anyone else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right. Though April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. It was in the clammy months that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son Harrison away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks. She'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic like bandits from a burglar alarm. 
That was a really pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh, said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yup, said George. He tried to think a little bit about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good. No better than anybody else would have been, anyway. They, burden they were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked so that no one seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far into it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced, so did two out of the eight ballerinas. Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. Sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer, said George. I think it would be real interesting hearing all the different sounds, said Hazel. A little envious. All the things they think up. Um, said George. Only if I was handicapped or general. You know what I would do? Said Hazel. Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapped or general. A woman di named Diana Moon Glampers. If it was Diana Moon Glampers, said Hazel, I'd have chimes on Sunday. Just chimes. Kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes, said George. Well, maybe make them real loud, said Hazel. I think, I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else, said George. Who knows better than I do what normal is, said Hazel. Right, said George. He began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son, who was now in jail. About Harrison, but a 21-gun salute and his head stopped that. Boy, said Hazel, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling, and tears stood on the rim of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor were holding their temples. All of a sudden, you look so tired, said Hazel. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa? So you can rest your handicapped bag on the pillows, honey bunch. She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot in a canvas bag, which was padlocks around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag for a little while, she said. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind it, he said. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. You've been so tired lately, kind of wore out, said Hazel. There was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just take out a few of them lead balls. Just a few. Two years in prison and two thousand dollar fine for every ball I took out, said George. I don't call that a bargain. If you could just take out a few when you came home from work, said Hazel. I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here. You just sit around. If I try to get away with it, said George, then other people'd get away with it. Pretty soon we'd be right back to the Dark Ages again, with everybody competing against everybody else. You wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it, said Hazel. There you are, said George. The minute people start cheating on laws, what do you think happens to society? If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer to this question, George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his head. Reckon it'd fall apart, said Hazel. What would, said George blankly. Society, said Hazel uncertainly. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows, said George. The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about, since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to stay, ladies and gentlemen. He finally gave up, handed the bulletin to a ballerina to read. That's all right, said Hazel, said of the announcer. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin. She must have been extraordinarily beautiful, because the mask she wore was hideous, and it was easy to see that she was the strongest, most graceful of all the dancers, for her handicapped bags were as big as those worn by 200-pound men, and she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was very unfair voice for a woman to use voice was warm and luminous, timeless melody. Excuse me, she said. She began again, making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, she said in a grackle squawk, has just escaped from jail, for he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He's a genius and an athlete, is under-handicapped, and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen upside down, then again sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture showed the full length of Harrison against a background, calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. 
The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever been born heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than the HG men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick wavy lenses. The spectacles were intended to make him not only half blind, but to give him a wanging headache besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry. A military neatness to the handicaps issued to strong people. But Harrison looked like a walking junkyard in the race of life. Harrison carried 300 pounds, and to offset his good looks, the HG men required that he wear at all times a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and cover his even white teeth with black caps at Snaggletooth Random. If you see this boy, said the ballerina, do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. There was a shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Scream and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again, as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake, and well he might have, for many was the time his own home had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, said George, that must be Harrison. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen, clanking, clownish, and huge. Harrison stood in the center of the studio. The knob of the, up of the uprooted studio door was still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, and announcers cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the Emperor, cried Harrison. Do you hear? I am the Emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. He stamped his foot and the studio shook. Even as I stand here, he bellowed, crippled, hobbled, and sickened. I am a greater ruler than any man who ever lived. Now watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper. Four straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs under the, under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealed a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress, he said, looking down on the cowering people. Let the first woman who dares to rise to her feet claim her mate and her throne. A moment passed, and then again, and then a ballerina rose, swaying like a willow. Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Now, said Harrison, taking her hand, shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? Music, he commanded. The musicians scrambled back into their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps too. Play your best, he told them, and I'll make you barons in 